Hi everyone, welcome back. We're at Asiatic Affairs. I'm Bernice and here with me today is Preacher. This is the Narratives of Asia podcast. Welcome back to our two-part series on the socio-economic impact of COVID-19 in East and South Asia as well as the Middle East. Following on from our previous discussion last time on issues including China's global economic integration, impacts on the worst hit sectors like that of travel and tourism, and dispelling the myth behind the uncannily low numbers of cases detected in South Asia. If you are interested in those areas, make sure you also check out our previous episode. Today we'll be looking at the Middle East instead, and some of the areas we'll be looking at include the diplomatic developments between countries in this region with the US over trade and exports, the fall of oil prices in the Gulf Cooperation Council region, or GCC for short, Palestinian and Israeli cooperation in their efforts to contain the coronavirus, and also looking more closely at regions like Yemen, riddled with years of interstate wars and refugee crises, and how they're coping under the pressures of that epidemic. But before we launch into more of this interesting stuff, we just wanted to let everyone know about Asiatic Affairs, who we are and what we do. We are a new UCL society looking to create a platform for students of all backgrounds to engage in open constructive discussion on issues in Asia. From geopolitics to business, the environment and technology, we aim to raise awareness and increase engagement with, with issues in Asia, as well as looking to understand their impact on the wider world. If you're interested, Check out what we do on Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify at UCL Asiatic Affairs. So let's start off by what, in your opinion, is the epicenter of the crisis in the region, and how are the costs of this crisis being tackled? Iran is arguably the epicenter of the crisis in the Middle East, with about 76,389 cases as of now. To understand the effect of coronavirus in Iran, it is important to be familiar with the sanctions imposed by the U.S., now, under the Trump administration, U.S. withdrew from the 2015 nuclear deal and imposed harsh sanctions on Iran, as a result of which Iran focused on boosting domestic capacity while attempting to boost non-oil exports, such as face masks to China recently. Oil exports naturally plunged. The economy contracted by an estimated 9.5% last year, the real lost half its value and inflation soared at 40%. Most banks are reluctant to engage in any dealings with Iran because they fear retaliation, and this has made securing specialist imported medicines and equipment for coronavirus a very difficult task. As the debt toll climbed in the country, U.S. imposed further sanctions a few weeks ago again, although exceptions for medical and humanitarian aid are present. Considering these economic costs and Iran's fragile relations with the GCC, what is the impact of the crisis on the leadership and diplomatic affairs? Now, the Iranian leadership faces the key dilemma of imposing a lockdown a bit more severely. And while access to worst-hit regions has been severely restricted, shrines have been closed, and the social campaign to promote social distancing has been carried out by the center, the fear of economic implications have prevented a prolonged nationwide lockdown so far. However, another key and much more optimistic diplomatic development has taken place, as some members of the GCC have expressed solidarity with Iran in containing the virus, with UAE, Qatar, and Kuwait sending aid as well. While it is unlikely, a similar move by Saudi Arabia could help reduce tensions between Tehran and Riyadh. Talking about the GCC, how has the coronavirus impacted that region? GCC countries were relatively quick to implement stringent controls, and unlike other countries discussed so far, public healthcare system is efficient and accessible, which would make it much easier to contain the virus. But the development in recent weeks, which could hit GCC hard, which would hit GCC hard actually, uh, is the oil price plunge. 
As a resultant, energy revenue accounts for a huge share in their budgets. And this is particularly worrying for Oman and Bahrain, considering their large public debts. All countries in the VCC have unveiled extensive relief packages to support private farms. Now, I had previously outlined a an optimistic diplomatic development between GCC and Iran, but there is another side, side to the coin as well. Saudi Arabia and Bahrain have strongly spoken against Iran's response to the COVID-19. And there is widespread belief that the virus was imported from Iran or Iraq via Shia citizens. In response, Saudi on the 8th of March had placed Al-Khatif, a Shia majority region, under lockdown. And this could further alienate Shia citizens. Now, Israel and Palestine are diplomatic loggerheads as well. How have they been tackling the crisis? If there is one thing the coronavirus outbreak has made clear more than ever, it is the intertwined nature of Palestine and Israel. Despite their political differences, Israel, the PNA, and Hamas are forced to cooperate and work together to control the outbreak, as the virus could easily spill over from one region to another. Special mechanisms have been set up to update Israeli and Palestinian officials on the virus's developments as and when they arise. However, Palestinians still face unnecessary obstructions to secure vital medical equipment because of Israel. And this was recently condemned by the WHO as well. Right now, Israel has 12,200 cases and the state of Palestine has 291 cases. How have the two independently coped with this situation? Israel has taken one of the most aggressive responses to the coronavirus outbreak with swift containment measures, and the Prime Minister authorized the country's security agency to use previously undisclosed cell phone data to retrace movements of those who had been tested positive, and identify those who had crossed paths with the patient and should be quarantined accordingly. Now, this has unsurprisingly led to backlash as well, as concerns regarding civil liberties have been raised. The PNA has taken measures as well. It coordinated with the Israeli military to put Bethlehem on a lockdown, and a relatively surprising strong support for the Prime Minister's handling of the outbreak has grown. And where do you think the threat is the greatest between the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel? When it comes to economic threats, several key elements are mutually dependent. The Palestinian economy is heavily dependent on the approximately 95,000 laborers commuting to and working in Israel daily. And the access to cheap labor has traditionally been important for the Israeli economy. But it is evident that it is in Gaza that the threat is the greatest. And the UN mission is now focusing on coordinating Israel and the Hamas, who exercise de facto control over Gaza, and working with them to develop contingency plans. The Gaza Strip is the most densely populated area in the world. Its healthcare infrastructure is absolutely broken, and electrical supplies are extremely restricted. They're often available for less than half a day. There are less than 100 ventilators for a population of almost 2 million. And social distancing is a luxury people cannot access. Refugee camps are crowded with people who have no homes to return to. The elderly cannot be isolated from the rest of the family because multiple generations live tightly packed under one roof. And even though the region has seen only 13 official infections as of now, global healthcare authorities are already expecting the worst. Most believe the actual number of infections is much higher. And these issues echo across the most vulnerable sections of societies everywhere. The Yemen refugee camps, the Rohingya refugee camps, and the Dharavi slum. As for Gaza, it simply does not have the resources to tackle COVID-19 on its own. You mentioned the Yemen refugee camps. How is the situation looking there? Yemen's healthcare system, to put it lightly, is collapsed. It has entered the sixth year of a bloody civil war between pro-government forces and the Houthi armed movement. Known and occupied medical facilities have been routinely attacked, looted of supplies, and medical personnel have been subject to assault in the past. 
As a result, there are only 10 healthcare workers for 10,000 people in the country. There is only one officially confirmed case right now. To tackle this issue, UN Secretary General called for a ceasefire and coordination between all parties because a failure to do so can risk the lives of potentially millions. The Levant, along with Iraq particularly, has been long crippled with political and economic crises as well. Is that right? Yes, and it is in particular Syria, Lebanon, and of course Iraq where the situations are concerning. The number of official cases in Iraq are 1,400. In Syria, it's 29, and Lebanon, it is 658 right now. All these three countries have very close relations with Iran. In fact, the disease is believed to be introduced in Iraq and Lebanon via people coming from Iran as well. It seems like they also lack a clear political leadership and effective state capacity. Exactly. State healthcare institutions, particularly in Iraq and Syria, are severely unequipped to deal with the outbreak, and an absence of sufficient aid paints a rather grim picture. In Syria, the government long denied the presence of the virus in the state and only in the past few weeks confirmed a handful of cases, which is surprising because it contradicts the travel history of several patients tested positive in other parts of the globe. For example, in Pakistan, eight out of 14 people tested in the Sindh region who were tested positive on the 14th of March had traveled, uh, had traveled to Syria. UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reported the first cases uh, in Syria on the 10th of March, but the first official case was confirmed on the 22nd, 12 days later. Would you say there are particular groups that are at the greatest risk? Yes, there is a group of people who are arguably at a greater risk, and that is the refugees and the displaced in these countries. They live in close, crowded, and not the most sanitary camps, which makes it a Herculean task to follow traditional guidelines to avoid COVID-19. Coupled with the fact that they are not the strongest physically, the consequences of an outbreak in these settlements is extremely worrying. Thanks, Prisha. So to wrap up our two-part series, as the ongoing coronavirus pandemic sweeps across the globe, the economic impact it has caused is beyond imagination. The public health crisis has now become an economic crisis, and if it worsens, it could become a political crisis. And within Asia and across the world, it is always the poor, the refugees and the displaced that face the greatest threat under this outbreak. Just before we properly end, I wanted to quickly explain what Narratives of Asia really is. Narratives of Asia is a new branch of Asiatic affairs, which takes the form of a podcast channel. We drop episodes regularly where we host either one-on-one discussions or group discussions over a particular current issue or trending topic of choice. This could be an issue one of our writers are currently working on or an idea pitched by one of our listeners. If you like what you've heard so far and want to be featured on our channel or have an idea for our next episode, simply drop us a line via either of our social media platforms. That could be Instagram or Facebook or emailing us directly at uclasiaticaffairs.gmail.com. We're also constantly reviewing and trying to improve our technique, so feel free to message us some feedback. We look forward to hearing from you. And finally, thank you so much for staying with us. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. We are Asia Affairs, and this is Narratives of Asia.